This space we declare to be infinite. In it is an infinity of worlds of the same kind as our own. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Oh yeah, Giordani Bruno. Giordani Bruno, 1584. And I think he would appreciate the fact that we're in somewhere very posh to record this, Matthew. We're in the lobby. We're hiding in the lobby because we're not actual paying guests (laughs) of the um, Grosvenor Hotel in London. How swank are we? We're very swank. It's not ideal acoustic conditions, Jamie. But uh, uh, do you want to explain who Giordani Bruno was? I'd love it. He was an early supporter of the Copernican. Is that right, Matt? Yeah, Copernican. Copernican theory that Earth and other planets orbit the sun, which is called what, Matt? Heliocentrism. It's absolutely right. Do you know what? So, yes, put forward the view that the fixed stars are similar to the sun and are likewise accompanied by planets. This is going to be important for what I want to talk about later on, Jamie. He's talking about exoplanets. First of all, we've got a birthday today as we sit here in the Grosvenor House Hotel. Who is it? Well, you might hear his jingle occasionally on this podcast. It's the one and only Brian Blessed. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. Brian Blessed, born on the 9th of October. Is there anyone that we have enjoyed the company of more? I mean, how entertaining was that, like, four hours of just (laughs) crazy conversations, Matt? I do love a bit of Brian Blessed. Right, but I'll tell you what happens on the day that this podcast comes out, on the 11th of October, 25 years ago, in 1984, aboard the Space Shuttle Challenger, astronaut Catherine D. Sullivan became the first American woman to perform a spacewalk. But my favourite is actually the 50th birthday of Mariam Chadid, who's a Moroccan astronomer and explorer. She got a love of astronomy from the great Kepler himself. She read his books as a small child. That's how cool she is. And even cooler, she got her degree in Morocco I mean, two master's degrees, Matt, two PhDs in France and a bunch of other academic stuff in Harvard, too. I mean, we're name-dropping places here now. Yeah, but that habilitation thing is, is weird. It's, a, it's like the highest PhD. It's the highest academic qualification you can get. You don't get habilitations in this country. No, I mean, I've got a PhD in affordable IPA lager. Ah, yes, I'm just about to drink my can of interplanetary lager but Jamie doesn't have one because his colleague drank it (laughs) yeah let's not talk about that I'm still (laughs) very upset it's okay Matt you know you're gonna love this her son's middle name have a guess um Copernicus Tycho I mean that's genius isn't it but if you had one of your two sons again today, Matt, would you, would you call them Tycho? I must admit, Tycho is perhaps the coolest middle name ever, so oh, well done, up there. Uh, Maryam Chadid, for that. She got the Young Global Leader Award in 2008 and the Woman of the Year in Science in 2015. 
Woman of the Year. Woman of the Year, oh, as yeah. you might oh, say. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, God, that is just genius. And what do you think was handed over by His Majesty the King of Morocco in 2013? I think she'd got the Officer of Order of Hossim Alwiti. That's why I asked if you could pronounce that, because I saw it was coming up. Oh, yeah, well, I can't pronounce it, but uh, we'll see how many letters we get in from that. She is um, basically really famous because she likes to go to the Antarctic and uh, and set up observatories there. So that's one of her sort of big things, trying to set up the observatories in the Antarctic where it's really dry, it's not very moist. It's quite cold. Very cold, so that's, that's quite handy as well. But it's dark 24-7. So on a clear night in Antarctica is basically the perfect sky watching conditions. Yeah, you're almost like you're out in space because there's virtually no turbulence, no humidity, and it's, and it's dark for 24 hours a day. Can you get beer? Um, they must, there must take, be they, a they, mu- they must take some, There they? must be a In other pub. words, it's better than being on the International Space Station. But the, she, yeah. The nag's head. Yeah, and as a result, she's the first person to plant an Arab flag the Moroccan flag in Antarctica, and the first Moroccan, as well as the first female French astronomer, to reach the heart of Antarctica. And actually, Matt, this is a little bit close to my heart, because I've been to Morocco probably, I think, six times. I went for my sixth time last year, and I spent some time in the uh, Atlas Mountains, and it might be one of my favourite places on Earth. It's absolutely stunning. The culture, the architecture, the people, the food, lest we forget... Who'd have thought that putting cinnamon and raisins in savoury food would be a good thing, Matt? But it bloody is. <laughs> no, I, I would have thought that's a good thing. Oh, yeah. Um, I've been to Morocco once and I had a and I loved it, mm. but but I had some dicey moments. Did you get diarrhoea again? No, no diarrhoea. Just just um, unusual substances in my green tea, in my <laughs> mint tea. I told you not to ask for the special green tea. Yes, that's true. Jamie, it's the 50th anniversary of Soyuz 6. <gasps> now, we spoke about Soyuz 6 because Stepanovic Shonin was astronaut of the week. I and love how you did uh, yes, that. Yes, I did that. And Shonin has to be one of the best surnames because it sounds like a Japanese warrior. Or is that Shogun? Uh, I think... Oh, well, it's Shogun, it, it, isn't it? It, no, it? No, it's like Shogun mixed with Ronin. Yes. It is like Sh- Shonin. OMG. St- yes, uh, Georgi Stepanovich Shonin. Yes, and we had him as uh, Podcast 92. He was our, our, uh, our astronaut of the week, or really cosmonaut of Wait, the week. Wait, was that the mission involving space welding? Yes, that was oh, the one. Yes. Space welding. Good memory, James. Well, thanks. Yeah, so yes, he was... They Imagine, it, they were supposed to film... Soyuz 7 and Soyuz 8 docking, but that never happened because all the systems failed. You imagine how stressful that was oh, just God. after Apollo 11. I feel stressed just talking about yeah, it. I, I, so America have just had the big win, and now and now the Russians are going up to try and sort of get some face back, and yeah, that's pretty listen, stressful. Listen, listen, talking about big win, mm-hmm. Nobel Prize for the first exoplanet and Big Bang Theory. Ding, 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 hello, hold the front page. <laughs> yes, actually hold the front, front page for this one because a lot of the press reported this as the Nobel Prize for the first exoplanet and that was genuinely, that all the things I saw were the first exoplanet but I was looking at it going, 
but it wasn't the first exoplanet discovered. Now, so three scientists have been awarded the 2019 Nobel Prize in Physics for their groundbreaking discoveries. Who are we talking? Philip James Edwin Peebles. Peebles is a great name, isn't it? What a name that is. Yeah, so he's the Canadian astrophysicist. Uh, Canadian-American astrophysicist, astronomer and theoretical cosmologist and he holds the Albert Einstein Professor Emeritus of Science at Princeton University. It so just rolls off the tongue. So he's not exactly a slouch and he's widely regarded as the world's leading theoretical cosmologist and since the 1970s he's been a pioneer in things like dark matter, primordial nucleosynthesis, cosmic microwave background and the structure. And we often talked about his work when we were talking about those acoustic bubbles in the cosmic microwave background. Yes. So he's, he's basically, he, he has helped, um, like, but, but cosmology would not have been the same without people. Well, let so me tell you, who, definitely let, deserves let me tell you who, who else isn't a slouch, and that is Swiss, two Swiss astronomers, Michael Mayer and Didier Queloz. Queloz? Queloz. Sorry if I pronounced that wrong. Um, they share the other half of the prize for their discovery of the first planet beyond our solar system. Let me tell you what it is. 51 Pegasi B, the old gas giant, about 150 times more massive than Earth. Yeah, it's got a balmy surface temperature of about 1,000 degrees C, so it's not exactly uh, habitable. You know that I go with temperatures on planets with whether they can melt an iron bar like you can on <laughs> Venus. I think this is hot enough. Just about, yeah, yeah. just about. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but are they actually the astronomers that discovered the first exoplanet? Jamie, they are not. The first confirmed exoplanet discovery was by Dale Frail and Alexander Vorschsan. And now imagine waking up and, and you get a phone call from your rescue. Oh, I've just heard that the Nobel Prize has gone to the, to the people who discovered the first exoplanet. It's well done. And you go, oh my God, I've got the Nobel Prize. And then you go, oh no, it wasn't actually, me. Actually, I didn't do it. It's actually my colleagues that have got it. Uh, so, and but Dale Frail sounds like, do you remember cabbage, do you remember Garbage Pal Kids? <laughs> yeah. Which was a kickoff of Cabbage Pal Kids. Or Pale Kids. Yeah, cabbage Patch Kids. Patch, was it Patch? patch. Yeah, Cabbage Patch kids. So I've got the book where... So at school we used to trade the cards and my mum hated them because they were very gruesome. And uh, that sounds like a character there from that, what? isn't it? Dale, Dale Frail. Frail. Yeah, it's it'd be like a sort of Mr Burns type character. Hmm, <laughs> <laughs> Smithers. Smithers. Exoplanet, eh? Exoplanet. Don't think so. Um, Dale Frail, eh? <laughs> <laughs> so... Yes, so they actually discovered um, uh, an exoplanet in 92, and it's really cool, this exoplanet. It's, it's, it's in a system around a pulsar with three planets discovered in radio waves, and it's uh, believed that the planets were formed after the star, after it died, and therefore it's a bit of an unusual system. So it's like, yeah, there's a planet going around it, but it's, it's pretty bizarre. It's not like it opens up this, like the quote before was all about stars that are like our own, having planets like our own, and, and that's the amazing discovery. So you can see why it's not as exciting as the other ones. I can but actually, definitely see I that. thought it'd be worth having a quick look at the history of exoplanets, Jamie. Oh, why not? Because since Mayer and Queo's, um, uh, discovered 
their exoplanet. That basically started the gold rush, and we've got at least 4,000 exoplanets that have been discovered since. There's one or two. But Isaac Newton, in Principia, said, And if the fixed stars are the centres of similar systems, they will all be constructed according to a similar design and subject to the dominion of one. He was a good soundbite, wasn't he, old Newt? Old Newty. Yeah, he certainly was. Uh, and then in 1952, so that's um, more than 40 years before the, this discovery, Otto Struve, who we've talked about on Podcast 132, wrote that there is no compelling reason why planets could not be much closer to their parent star than is the case in the solar system and proposed that Doppler spectroscopy and the transit method could detect super-Jupiters in short orbits, and he was not wrong. So, actually, it's a really exciting detective story that back in 1917... Here we go. ..there was missed evidence of an exoplanet, and this is basically... There's a thing called a polluted white dwarf, and that was re-analysed and revealed that actually if they'd known what they were looking for, they would have had the data necessary to see that they'd found the first exoplanet. Ah. So that, that they've confirmed that there is a planet round Manen star, which is really fascinating because it's the closest white dwarf to Earth that's not part of a binary system. Oh, I love that word, binary. I'm just hopping on the binary train. It seems cool at the moment. Yeah, it is very cool. Uh, 1988, so this is still four years before... Or, or a long time, seven years before the, uh, the Nobel Prize-winning discovery, a Canadian astronomer, Bruce Campbell... And what is it about Canadians? They're obviously pretty cool, oh, aren't they? they're great. The old astronomy. Way cool. And Stephenson Yang of the University of Victoria and the University of British Columbia cautiously said that they had some information that led them to believe that they discovered an exoplanet, but they, they conceded that the data wasn't quite good enough to sort of confirm ah, it. okay. And then later on, in 1992, around about the time of our first confirmed exoplanet, uh, 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 some more data came in that raised doubts that this was indeed an exoplanet. Oh. But in 2003, the improved techniques actually proved, yes, there is a planet there. Stamped so, confirmed. Stamped confirmed. So 1988, you could say, was the first um, confirmed discovery, but it wasn't confirmed until 2003. So, yeah, it's, it's quite cool, isn't it? So, yes, it's Volsan and Dale Frail announced the discovery of two planets orbiting the Pulsar, PSR 125 plus 12, and... That discovery was confirmed and is considered to be the first definitive exoplanet detection. And uh, follow-up observations have, uh, you know, have absolutely confirmed it and also found a third planet in 1994. So that's still before this uh, first exoplanet discovery. Uh, and basically that revived the whole topic in the popular press. And, and, uh, and what's amazing about this, get this, so the pulsar planets are thought to have formed from the, un from the unusual remnants of the supernova that produced the pulsar. And in a second round of planet formation, so, that, so like, it, it's like there was a system there before and then there's another system afterwards. And, uh, and the remaining rocky cores of gas giants that somehow survived the supernova 
then decayed into their current orbits. So like Jeez. these like gas giants are being blown to bits and then the rocky cores have, have ended up being these rocky planets in orbit around a, a supernova. Damn. Around a pulsar, in, in fact. <laughs> so how cool is that? And Way then, cool, man. Yeah, and then 1995 is this Nobel Prize winning discovery of an exoplanet orbiting a main sequence star, namely the nearby G-type star, 51 Pegasi. And uh, yes, that ushered in the modern era of exoplanet discovery. Observatoire de Haute Provence. Yeah. How was ah, that? Oui. We got um, any French listeners? Uh, Observatoire de Haute Provence. Oh, that's much yeah, better. Oui, oui. Ah, oui. You sound like so... you've been living in Nice for years. <laughs> uh, yes, so initially, most exoplanets, Jamie, were massive planets that orbited very close to the parent stars. Um, and because of this bias to be only able to find that type of uh, planet, it seemed, oh my God, all the stars have just got massive Jupiter-style planets in, in close orbits to their stars. But that's just because they're easy to detect. Um, but so just this discovery of exoplanets has completely changed cosmology altogether. Hot Jupiters. Yeah, hot Jupiters. I mean, it's not every day you see a hot Jupiter, is it? <laughs> If you look in a telescope, you see hot, a good old hot Jupiter. It's pretty warm. But it's not actually a hot Jupiter. Is it hot? No, not particularly. Um, it's very active. Yes. In 1999, Jamie, Upsilon Andromedae yeah. became the first main sequence star known to have multiple planets. Kepler-16 contains the first discovered planet that orbits, orbits around a binary main sequence star system. So somehow it's found a stable orbit around a binary star. Hang on a minute, is that why Prince wanted to party that year? Because of the binary main sequence <laughs> star system? Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, he's par partying like it's 1999, i.e. when people have <laughs> discovered the first planet. Exactly. Because, because then that scene where Luke Skywalker watches three suns uh, in the uh, rise yes. is more believable. Totally more believable. So that's what Prince was really chuffed about. There's nothing for me here now. I want to learn the ways of the Force and it, become a Jedi. Uh, <laughs> oh, shit, I forgot the quote. Oh, God, I've let myself down, haven't you've I? Let, you've let me down too, I, Jamie. There's nothing for me here now. I want to learn... I want to learn the ways of the Force and become a Jedi like my father. Something about, I want to come with you to Alderaan and listen to the interplanetary podcast <laughs> yeah, yeah something yeah, like yeah. that it's exactly ja that. Jamie no, but now you've lost the plot shall we just quickly listen to my David Baker interview oh, if you could please because this is getting embarrassing so when we get back from the David Baker interview I'm going to tell you some exoplanet facts Jamie exoplanet facts I want you to shove them so far in my brain not what you lot were <laughs> thinking um, that it comes out the other side <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> out, out of your rainus. Good. Thanks. Nah. Right, anyway, here we go. Écoutez. Over to you, Monsieur Becker. Hello, David. How are you? Hello, Matt. I'm absolutely fine, having survived the rigors of Apollo at 50 celebrations, which were phenomenal and uh, good to be talking with you. Excellent. So, yes, let, let's start with that. I, I, I saw mm. you on uh, Newsnight and a few other programs. So, yeah, how, how was the Apollo 50? 
Well, I was amazed at the general in- interest there was among the media. You, you, one is very aware that there's so much news going on in such a variety of political as well as uh, domestic and international affairs. That you just wonder how it's going to grab attention, but it, it came plowing through on a coach and four, really, and elbowed everything aside for just a very, very brief period. And as you say, there was a a whole bunch of of media interest and documentaries and films. I think it's actually sparked a renewed interest from the media. I'm picking this up um, because I'm getting pretty much a sustained curve of interest in doing mini documentaries about other things off the back of how it seemed those Apollo at 50 programs were received by the audience at large. And I think in, in a way it's, it's it's non-contestable, isn't it? It's history. It happened. A lot of people can remember it. A lot of those who weren't around at the time are in awe of it. And somehow it just it just breaks free of this fractious um, bile that seems to infest so much of news today, particularly around political issues. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Did you have any favourites of of the films or documentaries that came out? I don't think so. I think um, I think they were all pretty good in various levels. The thing that that really was quite a shock to me. I I was asked to go and do a shared hosting with Dr. Michael Warner, a resident of Henley on Thames, um, and he'd organised with the Gillett's school in Henley to put on, well, well, it was not with the school, but he wanted to, to involve the school because he's very much in support of local affairs and events in Henley in the area. And he said, will you come along as an eyewitness of the time to my presentation that will last about four hours in the town square? And I thought, well, that sounds a tall order <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> to shut the town down for a whole evening on a Saturday evening. Um, and uh, and anyway, what he did, he got the the attraction of the council. They organised a complete shutdown of of the town square, and he had a huge screen, one of those great big wheel in wheel off things that you erect, um, and had a choreographed presentation through his laptop, which played onto a, an amazing sound system, and it it started about six o'clock in the evening with with a lot of really really feisty space music playing um and uh then we came to seven o'clock and two and a half hours of a presentation telling to the group that gathered the story of the 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 space program essentially 50 60 years ago coming up to the time of the actual landing 917 that evening and we were expecting a few hundred people there at the very most and and i think the estimate by the council was 250 to 4,000 to to 400 and a thousand people turned up (laughs) and they were that the the kids there were their jaws were on the floor that it held them riveted for the entire duration and it was really quite a an amazing evening because as the sun went down and rain had been forecast but it was clear all the way through the evening and a beautiful balmy evening as the skies just began to darken for the evening just after the actual celebration of the 50th to the moment of the landing where michael played it up on a screen um there was uh, the space station the international space station 
this this light went right over from the middle of the town hall right over the top of the the audience there i mean you you couldn't have <laughs> planned it any better you know it was unbelievable but that number of people demonstrated to me plus when we called them up and michael and i were bouncing it from opposite sides of of the big screen and i i brought a couple of things along from the Apollo 11 mission, and, and he brought some artifacts that he had in, actually in cases. So it was quite a, quite a major thing. But the important message from that was that people were seriously attentive and interested. And I think there is an underestimation of the interest that there is in the country at large in these liberating expressions of, of wonderful, wonderful events that are nothing to do with, with really with with the the turbulent days of the early 21st century but really are looking back to a time of great awe and great inspiration from so many and we when i presented four or three haynes books to space books to the three winners of the gillett school designer spacecraft competition and the level of standard was incredibly high so i took i learned a lot I'm learning every day. We all do, don't we? But I learned a lot that I wasn't prepared to experience that night. It was it was a very powerful indication of people, and that was a wonderful personal hands-on thing to see. So to all those people who came to Henley, well done. You were, you were fantastic, and, and it was just absolutely remarkable. And to see, going right the way down, as far as the eye could see, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people getting bigger and more and more gathering as the evening went on. So yes, um, it, it has been an extraordinary experience. Ooh, yeah. Well, that sounds that does sound absolutely remarkable. I must admit, there's there's a little bit of me of uh, I'm, I'm lecturing event management at the moment, and there's a little bit of me that uh, I got slightly stressed with the uh, <laughs> with the, with the numbers being so radically out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm watching my uh, premises license go up in smoke, <laughs> but but uh, yeah, that that's yeah, that's I, I guess those are one of the stories of. It's great, isn't it, to have these um, little points mm. points in mm. time where we can celebrate mm. something from the past yeah. because yeah. you can leverage that, and maybe some of those people that drew the spacecraft go on to actually design real spacecraft, yeah. and yes, and, that's right, and yeah. you've and you've given. Yeah, given someone mm. the opportunity mm. to to, to mm. get passionate mm. about something. So yeah, I, I I guess that that is the purpose, isn't it, of the of, of celebrations like the Apollo yeah. Fifty? Is yeah. to, is yes, to... it is. Yeah, it's not, it it could so easily be self indulgent. Bunch of old people remembering what they did fifty years ago, but it was quite the opposite, and it was quite stimulating, and it's carried forward. I do quite a lot of talks to the IET and the IMECE Institute of Mechanical Engineers. And um, every place we're getting record-breaking numbers of people turn up to hear these talks and surprising these engineering institutions and professional bodies themselves. I did a, a talk for the, it, it was actually an IET, it was an IMECE talk <clears throat> um, just last week um, and it was at East Sussex College and um 
we got 150 people turn up there, and, and most of those were younger people. So this is not something about an older generation um, stroking their beards and remembering enormously successful days in the 1960s. Young people are getting really motivated, and, and I feel inadequate in understanding how best we can utilize this interest because we need we need to service this interest in this new generation and it is there very positively and and it's it's in my personal experience when you turn up to give talks at, at engineering institutions you know i i've had 400 and 500 people turn up in an evening to for instance, the Ford Developments and the Ford Motor Company Development Center. Nothing to do with cars, but it was talking about Apollo 13. 450 people turned up. And, and you know, there is an appetite. They didn't come to see me. They, they came for the message. Because mm. we're all messengers for this, and when we're all together in this great search. And I do feel it really very strongly. And I must admit, the level of interest I've experienced in the last few months has left me feeling highly inadequate for how best to service that great motivational interest. But which is why, which is why I really seriously support what you are doing. I'm, I'm, I'm going to make you red faced <laughs> on air now, Matt, because because this is another channel that's going right out, and it, the interest is there. So you know what you do and what all of us do in our different ways. We've got to find a way of really, really satisfying that market need out there because it's strong. I've never seen it so strong. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's been a revelation for me is the interaction with with listeners so we, we we do have we do have our discord channel which is like a which is a it's actually a gaming a gaming channel thing that's right. been that's been uh co-opted by uh patreon so if people yep. if people support the podcast they can then they get an they get access to the discord and it's been right. it's been absolutely amazing so i yeah. every day i'm interacting with the listeners of the podcast and they they tell me yeah. things to look at and look at stories and it's yeah. it, and it's absolutely brilliant it's such a brilliant way of yeah. of interacting with with the people that are really into it and mm-hmm. and i guess actually i tell you what we have we we can move quite smoothly here into into things like um elon musk's uh starship because i because i I genuinely think one that there is a definite movement of people getting excited about space again because because it is changing and i actually the other day when i was watching elon musk do the uh do his little presentation yes i was thinking to myself thank Actually, for all his for all his errors and all his mistakes and all his things that's wrong with Elon Musk, thank thank goodness he's there because well, what yes. what <laughs> what an inspire what an inspiring thing it, it all is and it and it you know much much more inspiring some than other rocket projects that you see going on elsewhere and it's and yes. uh, and, and I think that really has been feeding back. So what what, what did you think? Did you uh, did you watch Elon yes. Musk's presentation? I did. Yes, 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 I did. And and I think, gosh, you, you only have to be a spectator to the audience to see via a screen um, the, the extraordinary gathering and following. Um, and and the fact that he seems so, he seems so, such a normal guy, <laughs> if I can put it that way. You know, he doesn't come on suited and booted, um, somehow carrying the baggage of office or position, or he just, turns up and bumbles his way into the topic and just seems like anybody trying to find the right words to say what's inside him and so that 
and presentation is all is all in so many different ways. But I get the feeling that people are turned on to listening to him and to following him because he just seems like a regular guy. And he happens to have a vast amount of money, resources, leverage and capacity for making these things happen. But isn't it wonderful that somebody with those resources is doing what he is actually doing? And I think, in a way, it's beginning to, I won't say embarrassed, but it's, it's beginning to spike around official old space folks who don't quite like the theatre that he plays to. Yeah. Um, and, 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 of course, as we've seen in this last couple of weeks, Jim Bridenstine at NASA has been a little sparky on social media about SpaceX yeah. and, and this new venture. Well, yeah, what did you make of... I mean, I, personally, yeah. I just couldn't believe Jim Bridenstine's tweet the day before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually thought, even though it was a little bit cheeky, uh, Elon Musk's mm-hmm. response was, was, was actually quite measured because he could... Yes, I think so. I, th- I think he could have actually <laughs> been a lot yeah. lot harsher. But what, what do you think... There must be a reason why Jim Bridenstine is, is, uh, is positioning himself like that. Is it... Is it do you think it is because he's trying to ingratiate himself with the with the senators and and, and, and oh, he's definitely yeah, he's definitely trying to do that, isn't he, Matt? <laughs> so yeah, I mean, yeah, I just I just thought that was an extraordinary moment of of yeah that that doesn't seem yeah. to be the right that very un-British anyway. <laughs> well, 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 that's appropriate anyway, isn't it? <laughs> it's not, <laughs> but um, no, I think um, well, perhaps perhaps we better just fill in the detail because we, we're talking to ourselves here about mm. an incident that, that not everybody may have, have known. But Jim Bridenstine was rather pithy and rather snappy in his remarks that basically summarizing and not verbatim quotation here, but basically he was saying, well, if SpaceX and Elon Musk could put the same energy into getting a crew vehicle ready so that we do not any longer have to buy Russian seats on Soyuz, and then I'd be a little bit more impressed. I mean, I, I think that was, wasn't it? That, yeah, that was yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, mm. I mean, it just doesn't seem fair. <laughs> well, I think I think Jim Bridenstine is caught literally between that that proverbial rock and a hard place because I think this this all factors into. Um, the fact that there has been disruption within the senior management levels at NASA. I think the Space Council under Mike Pence, who is still um, working to the drumbeat of the White House and Trump, who definitely wants to get humans on the moon during what he thinks will be a second term of office, which I, I think the odds on that are collapsing by the minute but but obviously there's pressure for nasa to get humans through the artemis program on the moon by 2024 i know jim bridenstine and many senior management officials within the agency felt this was arguably the very worst thing and potentially a destructive disruptive element within the program now called artemis because the money isn't there for this Congress is pressuring NASA to come up and give these commercial guys the hurry up, which is very disingenuous because if you look at the history of funding for the commercial crew programs, Congress only allowed NASA between a half and two-thirds of the money in the last 10 years it has needed for the crew program. And that in itself has 
has really put the brakes on the crude program. And, and people may perhaps forget that uh, Boeing with the CST-100 Starliner and, and Elon Musk with SpaceX Crew Dragon, um, they're only paying a portion of that out of their own profits, out of their own pockets, I should mm-hmm. say. Um, the majority of the funding is coming from NASA seeding these operations. So there's not so much a difference here between the big boys like Boeing and Northrop Grumman and Lockheed Martin in the space program. There's not so much of a difference. And I do keep on banging on about this. And I think, you know, to the perhaps the, the frustration of a lot of people, but, but it, it is really, really true that that if you track all these all these steps right back up to where the money has been coming from, it's been coming from the US government. And the government is the executive. It cannot make laws and it cannot actually pay bills on anything that Congress doesn't approve. Congress has to approve everything on the NASA budget, which is why there's such contest and why there's such such concern in Congress about this hurry up from Trump because they have not awarded yet the money that Bridenstine was asking for in this financial year. And we're relating this, aren't we, to this pithy remark from Bridenstine. Mm. And I think all of these pressures, knowing that he hasn't been responsible for any of these, and yet he is being made the fall guy for any failures to get NASA back on the moon with the next man and the first woman by 2024, he knows that he's pushing against a resistant door because Congress does not does not like this. And remember that the House of Representatives is much more robustly feisty and, and active. And although it is by far majority Democrat, the opposite party to Trump and the White House, um, they are not at all convinced that this is the right way to go. And so Bridenstine, who, who is up there as the poster boy for getting back to the moon, is not able to wriggle out of this straitjacket that Congress has him in, and he's just not convincing Congress that they should approve the money, let alone the several tens of billions it will cost, in addition to NASA's recurring budget each year, just to get us on the moon in a hurry-up mode, where NASA was looking for 2028, about 10 years from now, in rough order magnitude. The Trump office... White House has halved that, but it's got to be Congress who comes up with the money, Um, because Trump certainly isn't going to write a personal check for it. Um, And so Bridenstine is trapped in this. And so Congress, who didn't provide the money for so many years for crew development, these companies that are producing the hardware and now moving fast toward that stand on the shoulders of an inept and inadequate funding profile that Congress has never, under the previous administration, under the Obama administration, they never, Congress never ever did allow NASA the funds to really keep these companies working at potentially their maximum potential pace without running with, and I, I, I don't like political, financial, or program hurry-ups um, because usually you destabilize programs, and there's so many examples in the history of the space program where we've lost astronauts because of this. And, and so I think, I, I wrap all this up, I tend to back off and look at global issues, global with a small g, and I think Bridenstine, I, I see it in his face, there's it, it, no panic, but he knows that the tide is going out, 
and it's re- it, it, it's revealing the warts and all of this plan. Yeah, so <laughs> in short, it's uh, there's no time and there's no money for Artemis. I mean, no. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, we haven't spoke actually, and and uh, since this happened, but I think one of my favourite moments for lots of different reasons during the Apollo 50 celebrations was the moment where Michael Collins and Buzz Aldrin were with Trump and Bridenstine in the Oval Office. <laughs> did you did you see that? Yeah. I mean it was I yeah. mean that that was a point where I looked at Jim Bridenstine and said okay the, this this guy can remain cool under the most ridiculous of circumstances. Yeah. I mean it was like an episode from the apprentice where Trump starts saying, well we should be going back to, we should be listening to these two. We should be just going straight to Mars. What do you what do you think, Jim? And it's just like, well but we know that but we know that that's not the plan, Trump. <laughs> it's like, it's like, because you said it wasn't <laughs> it's so, so bizarre. Yeah. It was it was an amazing moment because he just mm. thought, wow, this is yeah. how this is how this is how top down it's being done, just uh, on a on a whim, and to a and letters, yeah, letters as well remind our listeners that in fact the space launch system is slipping badly now, still, and that uh, it's going to be twenty twenty one before Artemis one. Remember that Artemis one is the unmanned mission on this uh, very extended, very distant lunar orbit um, before returning hoping that everything works well there. Artemis II is the crewed flight, much like an Apollo 8 in rough order, simplified terms, uh, in that it's the first flight to lunar orbit with this system, uh, with humans. And then Artemis III in 2024, lo and behold, is the first landing on the moon by a vehicle which has not yet been designed, the definitive specification of which only went out a few weeks ago after being thrown back to NASA by industry who said, this won't work, guys. You've got to alter the specification. So NASA said, oh, yes, you're right. No, it won't. Will it? Well, okay, we've written the specification again, and here you are. Please come up with ideas on how you're going to do this, how you're going to build it, and what it's going to cost. There isn't even a decision on the kind of lander that's going to be needed to get to the moon. And hello, we're coming up to 2020, which means the clock is ticking inexorably and it's just running out of time. And now we have the declaration that, in fact, SLS is going to be reserved purely for launching Orion and supporting the gateway and is not going to be employed in sending the lunar lander, which will be sent separately to the gateway, which miraculously is going to appear in the next three years. <laughs> um, and, and that Orion will then send a crew to the gateway. They will then get into the lander for the very first time in space and go down to the moon. Uh, I, would, I would not say it's madness, but I'd say it's reckless. Yeah, it's it, uh, the. I noticed that they changed the spec slightly so that the yeah. that the lunar lander can actually uh, attach directly to Orion without the gateway even being there. So it seems. Yeah, like, I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. talk about talk about changing the plan. Yes. Really, so there's not much. I mean, there's there's so little clarity now about what the plan is. Yeah, the, 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 it's like yeah to think that it's mm. 24 when we all mm. know this i mean uh, uh, the timeline wise i thought that was the most remarkable thing about elon musk starship is you have a he only decided to make the thing out of stainless steel at the beginning of the year and yet, yeah there we are with a a, a, a fully finished prototype <laughs> almost mm. good to almost good to start testing with 
and then mm. you've got SLS where they're celebrating the fact that they've just just about got the core section together ten years later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and you can sense it in the proliferation of news releases and pictures and if you'll pardon the phrase, nothing to do with the president, but the trumpeting of the space launch system by NASA, as though, well, you know, it's sleeves roll up time, folks, and yet there are technical problems. And the delays continue to pile up. And it's on the borderline between a mandatory investigation by Congress. As we speak right now, I forget the numbers, and I don't have them at hand as we speak. Matt, but um, you may very well be aware, listeners may perhaps not be, that government programs have a mandatory cap, which if it exceeds the percentage of the estimated development price, essentially has to have a stop work order put on it, and then there's a special investigative committee in Congress to look at whether it justifies extending the limit that was set by Congress in terms of the public investment. The James Webb Space Telescope went through this same process when it was here, and that put about a year on the time of delay just in investigating as to whether it should get the extra money to keep going. So if we trip, we're right on the very border, and the Inspector General at NASA is warning that, it, that depending on how the accounting numbers are arranged, shall we say, um, it could be right on the very cusp of going over the budget that Congress said, well, this line and no further. And if you do exceed that line, you've got to come back to us uh, and we won't award any funds further until we've investigated. So there could be a huge break being applied by that that uh, that that boring end of the story of the space program, the political end, oh. the financial end, the budget. Well, <laughs> so if, if if that happens, we're in deep trouble. Well, yeah, no wonder Jim Bridenstine's a little bit tetchy then. So <laughs> I think I, I put it down to that. I think he's a very good guy. Um, I think he's too much of a yes man. Um, he's not the Jim Webb of the Apollo program, where Jim went head to head with the president Kennedy. Um, over lots of issues and uh, stood his ground. And I think, I don't think we're in that kind of, of game time today, though, for those kind of actions to happen, because we've got a very imperial presidency right now. Um, it's almost like a kingship where um, never, never would a president do the kind of things that he's doing now and take upon himself the kind of decisions which are only just within the law um, and becoming almost imperial in terms of playing fast and loose with the decisions from Congress and the advice of those who run these these various departments and agencies under the control of, of, of the government, the one which, which is the White House. The government is the White House the executive. But Congress really, really um, is is there for the long haul decisions but uh, anyway but um well, yeah, and, well and, I, sorry well i was just going to say let's shall we shall we shall we leave the the mess hmm. of artemis alone and fly across the yeah. atlantic and and talk yeah. about the european uh, yeah. uh european missions and yeah. this idea of uh, of the mars sample return becoming more of a yeah. more of a talking point well i thought it was one of the seminal game changers um, which is why uh, break, break, commercial advert, 
I put it as the lead news story in the in, in the issue of Spaceflight for October, um, which was the cash and carry, <laughs> mm. which is the cash supplies and then to bring them back. Um, here again, evidence of an overstretched NASA budget. Again, if you wind it right back, and uh, and I'm sorry, I, I'm afraid I tend to look at the global picture, and I think, well, this is great. This is this is wonderful. NASA is working with the European Space Agency, to have a combined mission which will bring samples back from Mars. But the very fact that it's needed, this international element, is great for Europe and for Britain and for, for the European Space Agency. It's fantastic. Um, but the Americans are not going to do this, and this is the only way they can achieve what they want to without having the money to pay for it themselves. And we saw this with Orion. Europe building the service module because Lockheed Martin put in a price that NASA couldn't stomach. And so Europe stepped in and said, well, hang on a minute, we can build it for you if we offset the development costs that we will pay for that by having access to the Orion flights. And this is where we get, is Tim Peake going through the moon? Because, of course, there's a gate open now for Europe to fly on Orion because Europe is building and paying for itself on a non-reimbursable basis except by by work in kind, by having a crew member on the vehicle, of building that. And and this again, this again with this with this international venture which which is very good, but it's only happening because NASA is being starved of funds for the ambitions that it has. And the Mars Sample Return program has really been rumbling around in the in the backwaters of the space program for about thirty or forty years, ever since Viking back in the nineteen seventies. Um, but it is a very, very exciting project. I wonder, I, I do challenge the logic, um, because already with um, Mars 2020 or the, the opportunity for launching, there's already a little bit of a threat to the European lander going um, yeah. next year. And, and I think it all wraps in. Re- remember, folks who haven't, caught up with this news that there have been a couple of parachute failures yeah. and that two more are required um the the russians are open they're saying it can't be achieved and that there's going to have to be a further delay of another two window years. which is another two years so i think this this new plan for which which again um we're talking as though everybody mm. knows exactly what it's all about but essentially what it is Mars 2020, this Curiosity lookalike, goes to Mars and is launched on the 17th of July next year. Um, it lands on the 18th of February the following year, and it scurries around gathering samples, which it will then deposit on the surface for a NASA-launched lander to follow in 2026 to be able to go and bring together in a return vehicle to go up into Mars orbit, that cache of samples from Mars 2020, which a European spacecraft launched simultaneously with this 2026 mission, will go and uh, retrieve in Mars orbit. So the American bit is after Mars 2020 to go and land on the surface and gather and collect these samples and incorporate them into an upper element which will fly back into Mars orbit, which will then rendezvous with the European spacecraft. And that European spacecraft, using electric propulsion, will wind itself out into into a trans-Earth trajectory and bring the samples back 
for early in the 2030s. And, and that seems to be the, the quickest that's planable and that's possible to fund and to, and to put down because these missions do take so long to, the architecture of these missions is so complex. But I worry that for very obvious technical reasons, this is cutting edge frontier stuff. Europe may not even be able to catch next year's window and yet again have another cancellation if this entire operation and the whole U.S. side is based entirely on reliable, on-time flights and perfect execution of a European project. I worry about that because I just, I just think it, it carries high risk for obvious reasons. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that. yeah, I, it, that's looking really, really dicey, isn't it? The Franklin Rover being actually deployed next year, it just seems, it's, it, the, yes. the, the, the parachute thing just seems to be absolutely disastrous because yeah. it, it was the second yeah. time it, it was the second time yeah. it failed. It, it, so mm. who knows when they, if they get another shot at testing them, whether it's going to be a perfect a perfect go next time and it's um mm. i mean just just to recap those parachutes are absolutely enormous they're they're yeah. uh, just about the biggest parachutes ever made other than some orbital yeah. orbital atk ones i think that were made for yeah. parachuting boosters down <laughs> uh, but, yeah, yeah. but mm. it's um yeah i mean this it's it's it it could be yeah you, you're absolutely right I think that that'd be a real a real pity because it's mm. it's that that's got to be one of the most exciting missions of next year hasn't oh. it the the yeah, uh, the, yeah. the Franklin Rover of course it's super yeah. stressful because how yeah. many how many nations have actually managed to land softly on Mars mm. it's mm. it's a, it's only one <laughs> yes yes so, and, uh, <laughs> and I think connecting these kind of programs laterally across when you look to India and China, it's almost as though we're plateauing at the capability zone because we're now beginning after a couple of decades of really successful interplanetary probes. It seems as though there's a, a almost an overconfidence in what we can plan and do and achieve. And I feel very, very sorry for, for India, which has such ambition and is punching way into the weight it knows it has, not above its weight, but is challenged by a lot of technical issues that all need to converge at the same time in the correct way. And space is hard, isn't it? And and we know this. And, and it's almost as though we're now beginning to see a peak, a plateau um, of attempts with an increasing number of failures, not only in testing, but also in actual missions. And the and the recent um, India lander yeah. failure as well is an example of that. Well, yeah, the the, the Bereshit and the Vikram uh, yeah. la- landings were yes. so tantalisingly close, but I guess yes. it's yes. I guess it's it's <laughs> it's a bit like playing in the Premiership. It's yeah. a lot, there's a lot of shots on target, but no goals. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, and 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 we can't expect to keep the politicians on our side. I mean, next month is the decision in Europe at the Council of Ministers meeting as to whether Europe, uh, the European Space Agency, will be given the go-ahead to process this. There's a lot going on, I have to say, um, between the European Space Agency and NASA, and I know NASA is helping an awful lot. Um, Not that it's necessarily any better at at solving problems with the European programme, but I know that on the Franklin programme that there is... um, a lot of help from the states now on converging 
technology learning curves and applying help and assistance because I think everybody realizes that we've got to keep the money lenders, in other words, Congress and, and European Parliament on, on our side if they're going to fund these programs. And, and they simply will not if there's continuous delays and continuous failure. And that is, you know, each mission can be re-scoped, relaunched, tried again. But there's only there's a very, very, very limited amount of, of acceptability that the political and the financial leadership of these agencies and nations will tolerate. But Britain itself, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of merging that with, with what's happening in, in this country with regard to, and I'm surprised that among all this space talk that we've been discussing with regard to Apollo 50 and the great national euphoria there has been over this great American enterprise 50 years ago, um, rather quietly in the media, Britain seems to be ticking a lot of boxes itself for its own participation with spaceports and the Virgin Orbit decision, I think, of this last few weeks is really interesting, isn't it, involving the Royal Air Force? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, for the give, give, give me a little bit of background on the, mm. on the, yeah, because it's an, it's an, yeah. R, it's an RAF pilot, isn't it, who's going to be yes. actually flying. Yeah. <laughs> the... Yes, it is. Um, he's, he's a very experienced tornado and typhoon pilot, and his flight lieutenant, Stormy Stanard. Um, who has been selected to be a crew member in part of a program that will begin to move the Royal Air Force much more strongly toward um, understanding the advantages from satellites and space. And I think in, in the last two years, very quietly, we have seen a more robust awareness in the defense community of the enabling and force enhancement capacity of satellites and space vehicles. Um, it's been a long time coming into the UK defence reality game because I think while there have been advocates for decades about the Royal Air Force, and, and the Royal Air Force has a long and proud history of being an advocate for British involvement, military involvement in in observation and surveillance, I mean, not in, in actual offensive weapons um, in space, but for decades has been has been pushing hard to try to get British governments involved. And I think the general environment now of British people being very space aware, organizations, the UK Space Agency, um, which replaced the BNSC, um, and the representation of government and industry aspirations through the UK Space Agency, even though it's dramatically underfunded, and under-regarded in general British government circles, I believe. Uh, there's tremendous capacity in this country, enormous capacity, which is still underutilized and unmobilized because it needs top-level government decisions for these bigger programs. But the RAF now is seriously taking on board the need for a range of satellites and replacement, the big name of the game now, and all this nonsense over in America about a space force. It's nothing to do with lasers and battle stations. It's to do with, essentially, reconstitution of decayed infrastructure in the event of, of combat, yeah. um, where satellites would be taken out of action. So the ability to rapidly launch and replace 
um, really denies the enemy an advantage of a first strike against space-based systems because you'll have their replacements up very quickly in a matter of days, if not a matter of hours. Um, and this is what the RAF envisages and is working towards. So, so um, Flight Lieutenant Stannard has been chosen um, and was walked out by by Air Vice Marshal Rocky Rochelle and also Virgin Orbit CEO Dan Hart here behind this in order to demonstrate that the selection of UK spaceports is not just about commercial operations for scientific and application satellites. The big advantage with this Virgin Orbit program is that you have an aircraft standing ready and waiting to take off um, with a satellite payload as a replacement. So if, if, if I can put it in crude and rather um, um, rather belligerent tones in terms of application, they launch on warning LOW of the ballistic missile ICBM force where you can launch within 60 seconds. We are seeing that coming to space now, a launch on warning that if you get one satellite go down, you've instantly got one on standby ready to go up. The commercial world has, has in-orbit standbys and preemptible transponders for commercial telecommunication services so that if one bank of transponders goes down on a communications or a broadcast satellite, it will seamlessly transmit from a different bank of preemptible transponders which broadcasters pay a premium cost for to bump the service that was flying on those others to get their main service flowing through. And that's how military satellites and communications work. There are standby satellite transponders on specific platforms. But now we're moving into an era where you can actually downsize the actual platform itself instead of being big and heavy and expensive. These are tiny things. This is this is the CubeSat and Microsat and NanoSat world, so that a rocket that's dropped from underneath a Boeing 747 operated by Virgin Orbit will replace in orbit satellites within hours that were taken down in the event of a preemptive to a hostile strike or simply flag-waving a potential belligerence by an enemy state. So it's getting serious mm. in terms of, of what the infrastructure susceptibility is to having been taken down because the military uh, would be blinded and made deaf by taking out the satellites which now control just about every single aspect of communications, command, control, as well as reconnaissance and surveillance. So the RAF is now really converging with these commercial operations and Stannard apparently is going to spend some time, three years now, really working um, in America and, and here to prepare the Royal Air Force for a launch on demand, <laughs> if you will, the equivalent of a launch on warning of a ballistic missile strike. And that is really quite a significant shift. And whereas there has been a lot of noise about this in America, about a space force, which really is nothing more than this, um, this is very much the response here in the UK. And I, I think it's a significant thing worth noting. Uh, no, uh, absolutely. I mean, the um, I've I've noticed recently that there's quite a lot of um, movement in things like uh, this. Next week, we've got this mission extension vehicle being launched. 
uh, that, that's going to go up and sort of uh, <laughs> rescue a geostationary Intel sat and, and, and become its new propulsion. So it's going to get, yep. it's going to get pretty messy, isn't it? In terms of yeah. things that, that are being capable to be done in space and, and other smaller satellites and spacecraft flying around that can interact with, with large satellites does seem to make the whole, yeah. whole endeavor both more serviceable but on the flip side of that technology you've got this extreme risk of it being yeah. more, more prone to attack mm. and i think the capabilities now it reminds me back in the uh back at the time when um the outer planet mission um the grand tour of the outer planets which became uh, voyager um back in those days we had what was called the star the self-test and repair spacecraft um People were challenged by the notion that we were sending light hours away vehicles that would have to autonomously understand their environment, their mission, and adapt to changing in environments that they saw that we didn't know about back on Earth. And it was a concept known as STAR, self-test and repair. It uh, morphed itself in the cinematic world into hell in 2001 um and uh i think what that that was so far ahead of its time but it's now come into the defense world the military world as so many fast-tracked developments emerge from um in aviation in particular the open architecture avionics concept where you design for the current generation but have an airframe that's going to have a service life of 30 years so that you create within the infrastructure and the architecture of the avionics a capacity to plug in and upload into it successive derivative technologies you don't even know about at the present, haven't even been invented. The follow-on from that has been the black satellites which exist in space which are components aircraft today can repair so that you don't have a radio transmitter that's that's a big unit you unbolt and slide out of its rack and then plug that it back in a radio communication system can have the components distributed all over the aircraft all over the physical extremities of the aircraft so that in combat if one component gets hit and taken out and the aircraft is still operational it's still flyable other elements within the architecture within the airframe will assemble a radio automatically and compensate for the component whether it's a semiconductor or whatever it is that has been destroyed by part of a wingtip being hit or something um, that is now taken out into space in a series of completely physically separated components of a capability that can be turned on in the event of conflict so they light up and come together but any one element of which is not the whole capability of the system so if you've got a surveillance camera system the communications to send it down or to or, or or to assemble the data it's collecting either optically or by radar can be separated out through several satellites which will come together to converge the signal that used to be coming from the single source platform that was deriving with the optics and the radar itself Wow. And, and, and and we're moving now toward this. And the RAF knows this, that we may have to replace an antenna or a camera, or but they're on different platforms in different orbits. 
and and that means this is this is the concept of the cruise missile and i remember very much back in the rand corporation we were looking at this way 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 back when people were wrestling with the idea when cruise missiles were given the goodbye back in the 60s when ballistic missiles seemed to be the answer and cruise missiles were unsurvivable in the 70s the cruise missiles that brought the um anti-war marchers out against Greenham Common and places here where cruise missiles have been deployed. The very purpose of those cruise missiles was to be subsonic, was to be potentially downable, but for hundreds of them to saturate air defences so that the enemy wouldn't know which one to take down, which one was carrying which kind of weapon, which one was the most important one, which was not so important, and it would totally wrap up and focus the processing power of the enemy's air defense system that you could get fast-flying, low-flying manned aircraft through between the radars, which led to stealth to shrink the ellipse of the detectability of the radar units so they can... they can Whereas radar zones overlap with stealth, you shrink the ability of those radars to see you, unquote, and so you can weave a path in, in the vacated spots where the radar is no longer any use. This is exactly now being translated into space. And it's exactly the concept. You will saturate the enemy and make it pointless in taking down your systems because you're going to come back tenfold and probably achieve a greater capability than you would have achieved in the day-to-day defense infrastructure um, supported in peacetime. Yeah, the, it, you, you've almost described the way that russia uses social media and and the media as well so it's it's kind of yeah. that it's that saturation of what uh, of multiple yeah. sources coming coming in and you're not quite sure you're never quite sure what what what's going on and it's yeah it's it's well it's, well it yeah i mean it's not just russia it's north korea it's china the the highest level of of um of intrusive and disruptive spamming is is now coming out of North Korea. Yeah. There's been a huge increase since Trump started intervening. Um, <laughs> you know, and and there's been a massive. I mean, I I think I think the great frightening thing about the world today is that we all live in our little zones and our little caves, and and each each individual is actually shrinking his or her horizon of awareness. It was quite chilling that for the first time since the first rocket was launched by Robert Goddard in 1926, liquid propellant rocket, for the first time in all of the development, right the way through to the V2 and then the enormous spread and span of ballistic missiles in the 1960s by the Soviet Union, by the United States, and latterly by China, um, for the first time on October the 2nd, America, North Korea, Russia simultaneously launched as bravado um, stick-waving exercises ICBMs to their respective test grounds. And it was not synchronized. They all were basically saying, don't mess with us. We're very close to the brink of having a proxy war in space as Korea and Vietnam were proxy wars for the superpowers in the 20th century. And nobody seems to be quite realizing this. But but North Korea, for the first time, has demonstrated submarine-launched ballistic missiles capable of reaching Europe and the United States. 
Russia launched one of its new generation of ICBMs into the Sea of Okhotsk, which is their testing ground. And the United States launched a Minuteman three right the way to Kwajalein from Vandenberg Air Force Base. And I thought, this is the first time in the history of ballistic weaponry that we have had three powers firing off the front end, heavy end, of their ballistic missile nuclear deterrent capabilities. And nobody knew. Nobody This is all public information, but nobody knew. And, and that's the scary bit, the fact that, that while we're all terribly concerned about the environment and about hydrocarbon fuels, and rightly so, things are ratcheting up. And this attempt for Britain to maintain a robust capacity for maintaining communication and intelligence information to our armed services is just one small part of that that is happening. But I'm quite involved with with the the um, various international strategic organizations that monitor these kind of things. And so it flashes up constantly in my inbox. And it was just absolutely incredible that on that same day came in these three, three um, announcements of the of these launches. For the first time, everybody's done it on the same day, not at all synchronized, just a measure of the pace that's now accelerating. Yeah, so, yeah, who said the Cold War was over? I mean, it's, just, no, it's, it's a it bit of a weird. <laughs> so, uh, you go, I mean, there's one, I guess there's one, there's one thing in there that is the post-Brexit. We have Britain trying to launch a Galileo system. Is that is a, 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 well a, a, a new GPS system for itself? Do you think that that is something yeah. that's going to come out of it, or do you think that that's, or do you think that 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 is going to go away and we'll negotiate some kind of piggybacking onto the current system? I I personally think. Oh gosh, you're going to come back to me in about a year's time, aren't you? I personally think it's going to die a death. I really do because it's a big ask. Um, there are a lot of plans afoot for from small satellite operators of, of manufacturers, of which Britain really is the world leader. Um, and uh, I just the capability is there for a very different system to the European Galileo system, and it is just possible. But I think there's such turbulence in our government and our administration. I cannot see a clear path for there to be a settled, judgmental decision to go forward with this but but i think that that's 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 just my personal opinion and i may i may have to <laughs> eat words on that but no, no. but i think you know i i think as we as we look to all of these we we keep on emphasizing the importance of history looking back you know we've talked about the star computers for the voyager program which now are manifest in a in a, such an exotic derivation of that concept that we could never have imagined that capacity back 60 years ago or for 40 50 years ago and that's why the history of these subjects and these areas are so important which matt leads me if i may <laughs> yeah yeah no, no, absolutely <laughs> to a little bit of a of of a uh, plug for um well most listeners will know spaceflight mm. magazine of of which i'm editor of the british interplanetary society well the the very capable um uh proud shoed capacity of John Becklake, the editor of Space Chronicle, he's decided that he wants to 
hang up his spurs. And so what we have done at the BIS is to take Space Chronicle and to bring it up to a full-color product, which will take a lot of the space history away from Spaceflight magazine and give me the possibility of being able to cover much more the existing and future programs where previously we had had to put a lot of Apollo stuff, for instance, in these last issues as we've been remembering these events. So we will be covering a bit of space history in Spaceflight, but the go-to place for the BIS, which will be a Spaceflight lookalike, to be published four times a year, like the current Space Chronicle, full color, but to have much more of that dynamic feel of involving the reader within space history. We'll have a letters column, we'll have book reviews of space history books on the second-hand book market, which, uh, which were from the sagely old days of the pre-space age to do with rocketry and the early days of the space age. So not current books in Chronicle, but Chronicle will be essentially the same 40 pages appearing four times a year, very specifically on January, April, July, and October each year. And uh, we just hope that we can encourage more subscribers to sign up to getting Space Chronicle because we've got some world-class historians. I've got an editorial board which I'm setting up, and I shall be flip-flopping editorship of that with Dave Shaler, who is one of the greats and the 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 very highly well-published space historians. He does a lot of books with Spring of Praxis. I've got yeah, to say, and, I've got uh, quite a lot of Shaler books yes, here. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and he also does the um, Sino-Russian seminar each year for the British Interplanetary Society, which, which is growing in size and respect and recognition. So Dave will be doing alternate issues with me of Space Chronicle, but very much more a bigger platform for a lot of really fascinating space history, but perhaps in a slightly more colourfully attractive way for the modern market that we have now. And we hope really that these two will stand. Current and future in spaceflight, Chronicle, all the history, Russian stuff, Chinese stuff, American stuff, British stuff, European stuff, right across the board, but an inclusive platform in which readers can send their letters and have queries answered as well through those letters. So give me another plug. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I really look forward to, to seeing that and uh, picking up my copy on my train ride home. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah absolutely brilliant well thanks very much for joining me david we we, we better wrap this up we're just about to hit the yep. hour we're just about to hit the one hour mark that might be one okay. of, that might be one of our records but i think <laughs> <laughs> i think the overall consensus of that of that chat was the uh if i had to sum up it would be how politics gets in the way of uh, progress in space. <laughs> I think in many things in life as well, as I think most of us agree. <laughs> and yet it's an essential overseeing management of our lives that somehow we've never been able to construct a society to do without. Yeah, <laughs> I mean... That, considering that they, they, they yeah they're not very good at uh, handling space but they seem to be handling brexit it's extremely well it seems you know 
if only <laughs> if only they could take the skills of of yeah this the the, the way that we're handling Brexit into the space sector that would uh, it would solve everything right. <laughs> I'm not I'm not quite sure what to take from that, but because I think a lot of people would be, <laughs> but I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Thanks very much, David, and I'll I'll, I'll speak to you soon. Cheerio. Take care. Bye-bye. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive! There we go. A long time we haven't had David Baker on. Anyway, there we go. Very long chat there. Jamie, Exoplanet Facts. Do you want want some? Throw some at me. Right. We talked about this, actually, on the podcast. The furthest away exoplanet ever discovered, right? So back on Podcast 67... Uh, we talked about a paper that had come out by Jean Jourdai and Eduardo Gueras, who used NASA's Chandra X-ray Observatory to probe for planets in a galaxy roughly 3.8 billion light years away. Sweet Lord. <laughs> so they, they were using micro-lensing from a quasar. So a quasar, like a black hole that's very active. And using the massive gravity they were able to see 2,000 unbound planets moving between the galaxy's stars not actually directly see them but uh, it explains some kind of emission line and and they reckon that those planets range in size from Earth's moon to the planet Jupiter so they've been able to see exoplanets or uh, infer that there's 2,000 of these planets moving between Another galaxy star, 3.8 billion light years away. Just, just try and get your head around that, right? <laughs> so they're the furthest exoplanet. The, that's the furthest exoplanets. If anyone's um, aware of the underground tube in London, it's about the same distance as when you get off um, on the Northern Line, and you need Wake to up in Morden. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was going to say, it's, uh, if, you want, yeah, if you get off at the Northern Line and you want to cross over to the... Oh, it might be the District in Circle. It's a hell of a walk. Oh, yeah, that is a hell walk. Hell of yeah, a that's walk. that's awful, awful walk. There's one at King's oh, wow. Cross like that as well. Oh, um, God, yeah. Uh, the least distant... You know this one, Jamie. What is the least distant exoplanet? Well, it's probably 4.22 light years away, isn't it? Yeah. And why is it 4.2? And this is Proxima Centauri B. Um, Also the closest rocky exoplanet. Closest potentially habitable known exoplanet. This is one I got mega excited about about two years ago. That's when I, once for once, bought a new scientist. And I read it. (laughs) It was, well, it still remains one of the most exciting discoveries. Yeah, it's going to stay that way, Matt. Sorry to say, for the next... 25,000 years. It's surely a record. Well, it's an absolute record. So it will always be the nearest um, the nearest exoplanet. It's, it's an absolute record. There we go. Least distant, directly visible. So this is one that's actually been... You can see it in, in images. So it's not one that's been inferred by wobbles of stars and spectroscopy and all that kind of stuff. And that's... Fomalhaut B, which is 25 light years away, and you, you can actually see it in images. Jeez Louise. Yes. Most massive is an exoplanet called CD332722B, and it's 31 Jupiter masses big. So actually, that's big. It's on, the, it's on the brink of being so massive that it's 
pretty much a brown dwarf. A brown dwarf? Brown dwarf. I don't think I've heard us say that before. No. Brown dwarf in the solar system. La 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 la. There's a least massive planet as well, which is WD1145. Is it really which, good at unsticking rusty metal? No, it's... It, it, what? A small planet? It's me tenuously referring to WD40. Oh, WD40. Sorry. No, no, WD1145. Oh, okay. Yeah, and, and that is only... <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to get this right. It's only 0.06% the size of Earth. So yeah, 0.0067 Earth's big. It's tiny, like tiny. That sounds a little bit like... <laughs> no, Jamie, for God's sake, we're in a hotel. So anyway, Jamie, Sorry, I'll give you one last fact before, okay, we, let, we, before, we, before we let Sorry, this... Sorry, very late we, in the we day. Let, let the listeners go. Yes. The oldest. How old do you think the oldest exoplanet is? And I wiggled Ooh. my glasses there to, to, to make Jamie put him off. A if bit. I had to guess, the oldest exoplanet is a billion years old. A billion years old? Not bad, not bad. You're an order of magnitude out. It's 13 billion years old, or 13 giga years old, as they say. That is old and wise. Yes. And it orbits in a circumbinary orbit around two stellar remnants, a pulsar and a white dwarf. So it, this What's, is... Which one do you want to be? The pulsar or the white dwarf? Um, well, I suppose i better be the white dwarf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, no, we've been down this road yeah, before. Yeah, we have. Where, where the pulsar... Oh, yeah, the pulsar is smaller than the white dwarf. Much smaller. Matt, what was that theme tune? Um, there's a road... That keeps on bugging me down the face. That's where I wanna be. And every step I take, I make a new friend. Just turn around, just turn around, and I'm gone again. And you think that's called Pulsar and the White Dwarf? No, it just made me think of that. What was the program with the little dog? Uh, I'm sorry, listeners. Jamie's gone mental. <laughs> I've had a beer. I've had a beer. <laughs> I haven't had my beer yet. Yeah, so the oldest, the oldest, I didn't even say what it was called, Jamie. It's called PSR. P1620-26B. No way. Yeah, yeah, you know, you know that stuff. I've got a cousin called that. <laughs> yeah, uh, but do you know what the nearest habitable, the, not the nearest, the oldest habitable planet. Now bear in mind what that means. That means it's had the longest for life to come into existence. Ah, yeah. okay. How old do you think the, the oldest potentially habitable exoplanet we've found is? Then I'm going to say uh, 8 billion years. Not bad, not bad. 11 billion oh, years. Not that far off. 11 giga years. And that's Captain B. It's probably got some hydrothermal vents. Undoubtedly, Jamie, undoubtedly. Anyway, Jamie, uh, shall we let the spodcats go? Let's let the spodcats go. And people are looking at us very strangely... People are walking past us thinking, who is that old man interviewing that young, hot rock star? (laughs) 
they're not thinking that at all. They're thinking, who are the two tramps that have managed to find their way into the Grosvenor <laughs> Hotel? Why won't they pay for the beer? <laughs> Wait, why is one of them drinking a beer out of <laughs> a brown paper a brown bag? Envelope. I'm not even joking Literally. you. That's what's happening here. Literally, we've got all old school, um, yeah, brown, brown paper bag, alcohol, very expensive hotel, two tramps. But hey, guys, we're keeping it real for you. We'll probably stick some Instagram pictures of our uh, podcast um, uh, uh, exploits. We've got a podcast. <laughs> Let's make some, uh, we'll make some Instagram stories, probably pop them up online. Uh, you know, might, might use a hashtag or two. Bye-bye, Spodcat. Goodbye and stay classy. Or stay gassy like a hot Jupiter. Yeah.